you will, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 29, as we continue our study through the Word. So you will remember that chapter 15 deals with the topic, with the issue of the resurrection. The resurrection is the cornerstone to uh, our faith. And so Paul takes this chapter to really kind of do an in-depth dive into the doctrine of the resurrection. The Corinthians, it wasn't that they were struggling with the doctrine of the resurrection as far as Christ is concerned, but they had questions about believers that have died and, and all. And so Paul just kind of pulls back and begins by affirming the doctrine of the resurrection and talks about I received and delivered to you first of all that which I received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried and that on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. So once again Paul affirms the doctrine of Christ's resurrection isn't something that he took and presented, but that he had received that from the Lord himself. And so Paul was one of those that had seen the risen Lord and the Lord there on that road to Damascus when the Lord revealed himself. Peter goes on, or Paul goes on from stating the doctrine of the resurrection and that it was in fulfillment of the scriptures that we see throughout the Old Testament, the various different prophecies that talk about the resurrection. And Jesus himself said that he must go to Jerusalem, be turned over into the hands of the wicked, be crucified, but that he would rise again on the third day. And so all of these in fulfillment of the scripture, he went on to talk about the witnesses, those who had seen the risen Lord. And he began with Cephas and Peter was the first apostle and then went on to the other apostles, to the 500 that saw the resurrected Lord and, and then to James and, and the other apostles. And finally, he says of, of himself, one who was born out of due time. I, I am the least of the apostles, he would go on to say, but I am what I am by the will of God. And we stopped and talked about that, that each and every one of us can say that exact same thing today. If you're saved, then you are born again. You're a child of God by the grace of God, by grace you have been saved and that not of yourself. It is a free gift from God. And so each and every one of us today, we stand in our identity in Christ Jesus because of the grace of God, because of the goodness of God. We who were separated from God have been reunited with God in intimacy through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so Paul points to his whole, not only salvation, but now his calling as an apostle was by by the grace of God. You know, we didn't see a bulletin put out that said we're looking for apostles. If you'd like to sign up, we would like to, you know, interview you and, and all. You know, Paul was persecuting the church when he got called by God to become that apostle. And so that was just a straight calling of God. And so 
from our salvation to our calling, all of it is just simply the grace of God, the goodness uh, of uh, God. He went on to talk about the resurrection, that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. Now, the feast of first fruits, that's where they would take at harvest time, and you would go into your field when it was ready to be harvested, and they would take a small portion and harvest it, and then they would come and bring that and offer it up to God. God would get the first piece, the first part of the harvest, and after they had made that sacrifice to God, then they would go in and take in the rest of the harvest. Well, in the resurrection, looking at it as the metaphor of a harvest, Jesus is that first fruit of the resurrection, and then everybody else is going to follow in the resurrection. We are the harvest that is going to follow afterwards. And, and then Christ ultimately is going to rule and reign in righteousness until every single one of his enemies is there before his feet and the last and final enemy is death and so uh, one day death will be conquered uh, as well and so that is where chapter 15 verse 28 kind of leaves uh, us off uh, now and and so uh, we pick it up uh, here now when all things are made subject to him then the son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him that god may be all in all verse 29 otherwise what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all why then are they baptized uh, for the dead so Hey, here, interesting, Paul brings up this baptism, you know, for the dead. So apparently this was something that was going on there in Corinth. And, and Paul here isn't going to correct this doctrine here of baptizing for the dead because his topic here is the resurrection. And so the fact that we as believers are going to be resurrected uh, again. And so Paul here is using this practice. Now, this is an unscriptural, it's a non-biblical practice where, you know, a living person is baptized in lieu of a person that has passed away. Now, presumably, that is someone that died in faith, a believer that had come to the Lord, but had never been baptized. Now, we know that baptism has nothing to do with salvation. And so uh, there might have been some proxy baptism baptism going on uh, back then. We see that this is not scriptural. We see that this is not something that uh, anywhere else uh, in the scripture is this talked about. But we see that also, you know, Today, there are cults that will baptize the, the dead. The Mormons have the practice of baptizing for the dead. This is why genealogies are so important to, to them. But once again, we wouldn't baptize for the dead because baptism is not, a, uh, is not a piece or a part of your salvation. Baptism is the subsequent action of a person that has already received Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. It is just the public announcement to everybody of what was an inward transaction in a person's heart. And so salvation is when you confess Jesus Christ with your lips and you believe in your heart 
heart that he was raised from the dead. That is when you make Jesus Christ the Lord of your life. So Paul, once again, is just simply walking them through the logic that we are resurrected. Jesus is the first fruits uh, of the resurrection. And even the fact that they're baptizing for the dead is something that demonstrates that they believe in the resurrection. Verse 30. And why do we stand in jeopardy uh, every hour? And so why do we jeopardize our lives? If there is no resurrection, so this is the argument that Paul's making, if there isn't a resurrection, if in this life all that happens is that you breathe your last breath and then you die, and there is nothing after this life, then Paul is saying, then why are we doing what we are doing? We stand in jeopardy every uh, hour. Why should I face the beatings and the imprisonments and the persecution if there is no resurrection? Why am I doing what I'm doing? I affirm by the boasting in which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus. What advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul says that uh, I die daily. And Paul now is talking about his exposure to daily trouble, daily danger. Paul's life and ministry, the imprisonments, the beatings, the persecution that Paul faced to take and to present the good news, the, uh, the gospel. He says, I've even fought beasts uh, in Ephesus. Now, uh, what does that mean that Paul fought with beasts uh, there in uh, Ephesus? Well, some scholars believe that it is possible that Paul may have been literally placed in an arena uh, where there were wild beasts that were sent in. We don't have any uh, record of that, but, uh, but that is a possible interpretation of this. What we do know is that Paul faced tremendous persecution there in the arena at uh, Ephesus. You will remember how Demetrius, the silversmith, was upset because uh, Paul was preaching against Diana. Diana was the goddess of the city of Ephesus, and, and they had a great temple that was there built in Ephesus, a famous huge temple that people would come from all over the world to, uh, to that temple there that was to Diana. And, and so Demetrius had a souvenir shop, a gift shop that was there and had all of these uh, silver little uh, idols uh, of uh, Diana. And as Paul is preaching that, you know, Diana isn't real and, and there is only one true God, well, sales started to slump in Ephesus on, uh, on these uh, silver trinkets that Demetrius was selling. And so he got the rest of the silversmiths together and he's like, you know, if we let this guy continue we're not going to have jobs anymore we're going to be you know out on the street you know great is diana uh, of ephesus and and the whole crowd begins to uh, to riot and they all run down to the theater and paul wants to go down and address the the theater and the 
uh, and the others wouldn't allow him because Paul would have just been torn apart had he gone down uh, to the theater there. And so, you know, wrestling against the beasts in, in Ephesus uh, now may, may refer to the struggle that Paul has there in uh, Ephesus uh, in particular. But if the dead do not rise, so Paul says, you know, if this is all that there is in life, and then you die and, and there's nothing afterwards, then you know what? Let's just eat, drink, and be merry because there is no future whatsoever. But certainly that is not the case. He says in verse 33, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. And so here, evil company corrupts good habits. This was a quote from a, a comedy of that day that was written by the, uh, the Greek playwright Menander, and it was titled Thias. And, and so it was a, a famous little quote that was out of it, much in the same way that we have movies and quotes out of movies that we will banter around. This was a well-known uh, phrase that was in the culture at that time. And so, you know, Paul uses this now to to take a profound truth that even the world knew the wisdom of the corrupting effect uh, that sin has, that bad company corrupts good habits or good character. It means it, be careful who you keep company with. And that is a, an important lesson. Here Paul is talking about the fact that there are those who were denying the truth of the uh, resurrection. That's the bad company that Paul is talking about. And, and that when you are spending time around uh, people that are not of good character, that their character is going to affect you. It is going to influence you. You are not impervious to your surroundings. And so it is important that you choose your friends well. It's been said that your friends are either going to lift you up or pull you down. And so which are the friends that you have in your life? Life is short. And time is the one commodity that you can never, ever get back again. You know, you can lose money and then you can make money again. But when you lose time, you can never recapture that time. You can never, ever make up for lost time. And so how are we using this life that we have and who do we spend our time with? Paul says to choose that wisely when you're when you're associating with people who you know are arguing false doctrine and bringing confusion in this now is going to have an effect uh, on us proper theology should lead to proper living to right living a right understanding of the truth of how this world operates and who God is and our salvation in Christ Jesus should affect the way that we live. So also false doctrine is going to have an effect on the way that we live. And so Paul here is saying that we want to avoid the people who are trying to bring confusion into our life with false doctrine. And he says, you know, don't be deceived that your association 
relation, your friendship uh, with them is going to have an effect. Jesus said it you know, another way, that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And so uh, who we have friends and how we associate is important. He says in verse 34, awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. And so to stand around and to be immersed in these you know, theological conversations is a distraction from living righteously. And so Paul here is calling them to, to, to wake up and now walk forwards in your faith. Grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one. What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. And so Paul now has kind of settled the issue of the resurrection, and now there may be some further additional questions. So he kind of throws out two questions that he then is going to answer. How will the dead be raised? And then what kind of bodies are they going to have once they are raised? How, how is it possible for a dead body to come back to life. And, and if it could do so, then what kind of a body you know, would it be? And so you know, the, there were people that were thinking that you know, the resurrection is about you know, a mummy that comes back to life again, you know, comes out of the grave and they're half decomposed and they're completely decomposed and how is this you know, going to work and, and all of these things. And so they couldn't wrap their minds around the, the resurrection itself and they had these questions and so you know Paul is going to talk about this and what does the you know the the, the body what is our resurrected body going to to be like so Paul uses the metaphor of a plant with a seed that the seed goes into the ground but what grows back out isn't a seed but a completely different a plant that comes out from that seed that our physical bodies when we go into the grave that physical body is just simply now the seed of the resurrected body that is going to take place it is not going to come out the exact same way that it went in and so Paul writes in verse 38 but God gives it a body as he pleases and to each seed its own body and all flesh is not the same flesh but there is one kind of flesh of men another flesh of animals another of fish and another of birds and so God gives a body as he pleases. The physical body that God gives to us is as he pleases and that there are different kinds of bodies. And so, you know, to mankind, he gave our bodies. But then he talks about the different elements. 
you have the air element and you have the land element and then you have the the water element and so god made animals that are able to fly that are able to to operate and gave them you know wings and and these bodies that allow them to traverse uh, upon the winds uh, of the world and so god made those animals now he made other animals to run around on the ground and and he gave them bodies that were suited to uh, to to live here upon the ground and then the water he made animals that can live in the water that can breathe out of the water and god made those animals and each of those animals god gave to them different bodies suitable for the environment that they are going to dwell and so there's all different types of bodies that god has been created and so paul is just trying to help them to understand the incredible creative genius of god as they're struggling to understand well how exactly is that going to work and and paul says look at god god is the master creator of giving all different types of bodies suited for all different circumstances and different environments and he goes on now to talk about you know the heavens here there are also celestial bodies so he's talking about angels and and the bodies that angels have and what are those bodies like there are celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies we these are our terrestrial bodies our earthly bodies but the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another they're made to dwell in different domains there is one glory of the sun another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for one star differs from another star in in glory and so the the heavenly bodies now he is talking about the sun the moon the stars those are the heavenly bodies and how they differ greatly from the earthly bodies and each kind of body has its own substance and and god created and and controls uh, all of them so uh, also is the resurrection of the dead the body is sown in corruption it is raised in incorruption it is sown in dishonor it is raised in glory it is sown in weakness it is raised in power and so just like a seed that goes into the ground and then grows into this glorious new plant so it'll also be with the resurrection of the dead it's not going to be a a corpse that is going to be raised back to life again it's a seed that goes into the ground and now a completely new is going to come forth He says in verse 44 it is sown a natural body it is raised a spiritual body so when you die your physical body goes into the ground but in the resurrection it's going to be raised not as a physical body but it's going to be a spiritual body there will be a physical component to it but it is going to be of a completely different nature than the body that you have right now the body that you have right now was made for this terrestrial existence but it is not an eternal body and it was not prepared for eternity your resurrected body is going to be prepared for eternity and so and this now your spiritual body 
There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. And so Paul now goes all the way back to you know, Genesis, back to the first uh, man. Now, Adam became a living person as God took dust, uh, formed it together. Adam was formed out of the dust uh, of the earth, and then God breathed life uh, into that dust. But we see that Jesus now is the last Adam, and he is the firstborn of the resurrection. In other words, Christ is the first of those who will be raised from the dead to eternal life. However, verse 46, the spiritual is not first, the spiritual body doesn't come first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, that was Adam, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. So we see that Adam came from the dust, but Jesus came from heaven. He was not made like other human beings. We see that he didn't originate, Christ didn't originate from the dust of the earth as Adam. He came from heaven and then dwelt in an earthly body. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. And so Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, you'll remember, and he said that, you know, don't be misunderstood that a person must be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. There is a, a first birth, that is your physical birth, but then there is a spiritual birth that takes place as well. And so when a person is born again, now your spirit is alive and dwelling within you and you will be a part now of the resurrection. Your eternal spirit is now going to be encased in a resurrected body. And so this second birth, this birth now uh, of the spirit, and we are going to bear the image of the heavenly man. And so, verse 50, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. And so our resurrected bodies have to be different uh, from the physical bodies that we have right now because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Your body was never made for the eternal reality of the kingdom of God. Your body was made to dwell here upon this earth for a season. It's the vehicle in which God gave to you. But our eyes, for example, our eyes, our earthly eyes with the retinas and the corneas and, and all of the optic nerve, it was never made to be able to look directly into the sun. Just the simple sun itself 
will burn your eyeballs out. Well, the sun is nothing compared to the glory of God. And our eyes cannot look upon the glory of God. Our eyes would just go, and that would be it just completely burn right out of our heads. But guess what? Our eternal eyes, our resurrected bodies, are made to be able to behold the glory and the beauty of God. And so these bodies here, they're corruptible. They were not made to be in the presence of God. They were made to live upon the face of the earth. The new body that we're going to get, that is going to be the body that was created to be in the presence of his glory. And so corruption doesn't inherit uh, in corruption, and so uh, here we see that these bodies now were not made to live forever. And so God created different bodies, creates the, the bodies for the fish and for those that will be in the water, creates the bodies for the, the skies uh, and for the birds of the air, created the animals, and He created each and every one of our bodies. God chose the very body that you were given he took your personality he took your soul he fashioned you with your gifts and then god placed you in the body that you have today it is important that we thank god for the body that we have been given so oftentimes we, you know, look because of social pressure and, and because of body image that we think that we should be bigger or shorter or thinner or wider. Or, you know, I wish that my hair was this color. Or I wish that my eyes were that color. But here's what you have to recognize, that whenever you're complaining about the body that God gave to you, you're complaining against God. God is the one that chose your body for you. And He chose you, if you are a short person, He chose you, your soul, to experience this life vertically challenged. <laughs> and that is what He chose for you. If He made you a skinny, long bean pole with knobby knees, guess, guess what? That's the body that God chose for you. And so whenever we look in the mirror, we should just say, thank you, God. Thank you for this body that I have. Instead of wanting and coveting somebody else's body, is to thank God because God doesn't make mistakes. And God gave your soul into your body to be the you that he wanted you to be. To fulfill, listen, the purpose that he created you to. And so if you're vertically challenged, God wanted you to be able to show what a vertically challenged soul that is saved and radiating the love of God is going to look like. And that is going to be the purpose, your testimony. And if you are a skinny beanpole, it's to show what a redeemed skinny beanpole with knobby knees looks like when they are redeemed and shedding the light abroad of Jesus Christ. Rather than complaining, and being dissatisfied with the body that God gave you. It's a stewardship. Be a good steward over whatever body. Your purpose is to bring glory to God. 
not to be dissatisfied with the body that God gave to you and to us. The culture creates a single unified body and tells everybody this is the ideal. The ideal body is the body God gave you. That is your ideal body because God shows it for you. Amen? And so here we see that Paul now talking about these bodies, that these bodies that we have recognize this. They're just the seed to your eternal body. They're just simply the seed of your eternal body. And so verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Oh, how glorious Paul is talking about the rapture uh, of the church. And so the rapture of the church is that moment when we are going to experience that metamorphosis. So that metamorphosis, that word metamorphosis means to change the, uh, the body. Now, the classic example of metamorphosis is the caterpillar. And how the caterpillar now goes into a cocoon. It used to crawl around like an inchworm here upon the dirt of the, uh, of, the, of the earth, but goes into a cocoon, and then what comes out is a butterfly. Now, that butterfly used to be a caterpillar, but it doesn't look anything like it. It doesn't even walk anymore. It flies, and so, but there is a connection from the caterpillar to the butterfly. Well, the caterpillar is your earthly body. And then your resurrected body is when your earthly body now changes into that butterfly. So this, this new body that we are going to have, it is going to be Jesus' body we see as the firstborn of the resurrection. Now, when we look at Jesus' resurrected body, we get some clues as to what our resurrected body is going to be like. Now, Jesus wasn't just in a spirit when he was resurrected. Jesus had a real physical body. Jesus was able to eat. He ate a meal with the disciples. He ate breakfast uh, with them there on the of the Sea of Galilee. So this was a real body. We know that he had a physical body because Mary Magdalene there at the tomb when he reveals himself to her, clings on, holds on to him. She doesn't grasp and he's not there and he's just, you know, this, this spirit. He had a real physical body. Now, at the same time, that physical body was not exactly like his physical body before the resurrection. We see that Jesus had the ability to just disappear and to reappear. And so there was an aspect to that body that was completely different. We see that Jesus was able to walk right through a door, right through a wall, to just come right into the, uh, the upper room. And so we see that aspect uh, of his body as well. And so uh, we, he is recognizable. They could recognize him, but also he was able to not be recognized in his body. On the road to Emmaus, when he travels with the disciples and has that long conversation, it's not until he breaks the bread and prays that now suddenly they recognize him and that this is in Jesus, this is the Lord. So these resurrected bodies, how fun that is going to be to have our resurrected body with its different aspects. And, and principles 
the one that's made for eternity. So how does that happen? Well, right now, when a person dies, if they're a believer, their body goes into the ground and goes into a grave, but their soul now goes into the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So their soul is there, but not their body. Their body is here upon this earth. And so we have all of the saints, all of the souls that are up in heaven right now with Christ. When Christ comes at the rapture, he comes now with all of those souls come with him. And it says that the dead in Christ rise first. So those souls and their bodies here are going to be reconnected and then translated, metamorphosized, changed in a twinkling in an instant that is going to take place. Now, does it matter whether or not your body was put into a grave or whether ashes were scattered all over or whether a person was lost at sea and eaten by fish and particles of them are all over everywhere and the and the, does not matter god's bigger than all of that and kapow and boom and there it happens and into their resurrected bodies it says and then we who are alive, now our souls are still within our bodies. So we don't need step one. We go straight to step two, which is the, uh, the resurrection now the, into the new body, the translation that is going to take place. And we now are going to be in our resurrected bodies. And so the souls in heaven reunited in, in, into their changed bodies. We who are alive on the face of the earth, boom, we are changed now into our resurrected body. And then we all head off to heaven to enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb. Christ now has his bride. This is the church now. And now we go and celebrate the marriage supper uh, of the Lamb. And so how glorious glorious that is going to be he says in verse 53 for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality so when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality so this is after the rapture when we now have been given our resurrected bodies, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The ultimate enemy of every single human body is death. It takes every single person. It cannot be escaped. But once we have our resurrected bodies, then you know what? Death is defeated. The sting of death is sin, verse 56. And the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so if it were not for sin, there would be no sting of death. And if it were not for the law, then sin would have no power. But for those who have come to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, we see that we can say thanks and be to God for the cross and for the pardon that we have received. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. Be steadfast, Paul is saying, in, in the doctrine of the resurrection. Steadfast in your faith. Immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your labor is not in vain. And so when we live to glorify God, that work of bringing glory to God is never in vain. 
people can pursue and devote their entire lives to a project and then see that project uh, utterly go down the tubes and, and all of their effort was for nothing. But you know what? That will never be the case for anybody's life who is now participating in the building of the kingdom and living for the glory of God. Your labor is not in vain. Whatever you do for Christ will be rewarded eternally. As we close our chapter here, as we end our study, I want to draw our attention for a minute back to verse 34, back to where Paul says, awake to righteousness and, and do not sin. He, he's talking about you know, this wake-up call, that, that we need to have a wake-up call so that we are not slumbering, so that we are not sleeping as we are living out our, our spiritual lives and as we are living out uh, our faith. And there are those moments when you have a, a wake-up call when there are events that transpire that suddenly now bring about a revelation of a truth that you were unaware of. Last week we saw Hamas, the terror organization that is headed in Gaza that launched a vicious attack upon the nation of Israel and how they just murdered innocent civilians, targeted innocent civilians. That was their target. They went into a, a giant concert and, and just murdered and targeted people, children, families, and, and all of this. And, and Israel said afterwards this past week, they said that this was a wake-up call that this was a, a failure of their intelligence as Hamas had taken and, and planned to execute this, uh, this travesty here that Israel was caught off guard. Now, Israel is known to have the, the best security intelligence that there is on the face of the planet. And, and yet now, uh, they were caught off guards. And, and so they need to take and to reevaluate that. And so this wake-up call, Paul here, uh, is telling us as believers to awake to righteousness, that, that, that we need a wake-up call to check and to see are you really living out your faith? Are you really in that place of understanding the times in, in which you are living? And, and, and we see that as Christians, there are these exhortations. So here it tells us to awake, that you can spiritually fall asleep, that you can just kind of be going through the, uh, the motions and, and kind of sleepwalking. And so there is this you know, call to wakefulness. In Romans, Paul would write and do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. And therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. And so Paul is urging the believers there in Rome, they, they live in a wicked culture. And he is telling them to stay vigilant, to, to stay awake and do not conform to the culture, but that you need to actively continue to pursue righteousness and, and to anticipate the Lord's return. And so there is this, this wakefulness, this 
alertness to the fact that the Lord is going to return and that God doesn't promise anybody any length of time. And so to make sure that we are using the time that we have been given by God here upon the face of the earth to be impactful. Jesus talked about the need for preparedness, not just a wakefulness, not just being awake, but also to be prepared, spiritually be prepared. And so Jesus taught the parable of the ten virgins and, and how they were waiting for the groom. And five of them, man, they were prepared. They had their oil. They had their lamps. They were ready for the groom. And the others were just kind of along. <laughs> they were just hanging out. And they did not use that time to get themselves prepared. And when the groom showed up, there were five that were ready, but there were five that were unprepared. And so it's not just about being spiritually awake. It's about spiritual preparation. It's about readying your heart, readying your life for the return. And then a need for watchfulness. So not just being awake and not just being prepared, but then also being watchful as well. Jesus, uh, when he was giving the, all of that discourse, he says, and I say to everyone, watch. And this is the, the context about the end times. And, and, and the emphasis is on the unpredictability of the timing of his return and underscores the need for a constant state of spiritual readiness. The attack upon Israel by Hamas, the terror organization, we see that that expanded into Syria launching rockets and also Lebanon launching rockets. And Syria and Lebanon, they do not act unless Iran gives them the green light. Iran is the one that funds these groups. And, and we see Iran, while not taking personal claim for these events that took place. They said that they kissed the hand of those that acted in, in such a manner. And Hamas came out and publicly thanked Iran for the funding that they received in order to be able to take these events. The questions as we look at these through a biblical lens that everybody is wondering, is this the Ezekiel 38-39 war, are we now in the fulfillment uh, of this prophecy? And does Ezekiel 38 and 39, does this happen before the rapture of the church or after the rapture of the church? So where do these events uh, line up? Well, uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39 can happen before but it can also happen after the rapture. And so the, the rapture could happen at any moment. There is nothing prophetically that needs to take place before the rapture of the church. Now, when you look at Ezekiel 38 and 39 in light of the events that are taking place, my answer on that issue is that we are not there yet. What we are seeing, though, is the alignment of the nations that are against Israel. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, there is a coalition of nations that come and attack 
the nation of Israel. And another key point is that there is no friends to Israel at that time. No one will defend her and no one will help her. Well, right now the United States has sent our, our largest aircraft carrier into the vicinity and we are supporting Israel and we are coming to their aid. So that doesn't fit the Ezekiel 38 and 39. Also, Russia, uh, Magog and Gog are going to be the ones in this coalition that kind of lead this event that is going to take place. Now, Russia has declared that if the United States gets involved, that it will come in and directly support in Palestine. So suddenly here we see that Iran and Russia and this coalition of nations, these are all starting to come together. Uh, and so could this be the beginning of what will lead to the Ezekiel 38 and 39 war? That is impossible. We will see these events uh, unfold as they unfold. But what we do know, is that these coalition of nations will come against the nation of Israel, that Israel will be by themselves, and it will look like they are going to be absolutely overrun, and God is going to stand up and defend the nation of Israel and protect them. What should we be doing? The Bible tells us that we're to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now, when it says that you're to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, does that mean, you know, that we should just be praying that there wouldn't be any violence like we would pray for the peace of San Francisco or pray for the peace of New York or pray for the peace of, of LA that, you know, that, that a dense population would, uh, would get along? That is not what praying for the peace of Jerusalem means. Praying for the shalom, the peace of Israel means that you are praying for the time when the nation of Israel and when Jerusalem will be at true peace. And that time is going to be when Jesus Christ himself returns and rules and reigns in righteousness and we enter into the millennial reign and we enter into the fulfillment of the promises of God. So when we are praying peace of Jerusalem, we are praying our Lord's return and we are praying the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords will be ruling in righteousness. Between here and there, there is the rapture, but there is the tribulation that is going to come in great tribulation such as the world has, has never even seen. And so we are living in these last times, but we are called to look forward to the fulfillment of the promises when Christ will reign in righteousness and we will return and we will reign with him as well. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. And God, we don't want to be caught off guard. Awake to righteousness, to live righteously, to recognize the days that we are living in and the days that God has called us to live here upon the face of the earth. And so, Father, would you continue to help us to be awake, to be prepared, and to be watchful and to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for all of the innocent people that are being hurt, killed, wounded. Father, we pray for the Palestinians. We pray for the, the nation of Israel and the, and the Jews. We pray for 
for the peace of Jerusalem, upon the suffering of war, the ravages that are taking place, upon the inhumanity, Lord. And we pray your intervention. We pray for your peace upon Jerusalem. It's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.